The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change, encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I have Fiona Blades joining me today on the podcast, and Fiona is the founder and chief experience officer of Mesh Experience. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you, Seema. Thank you for taking the time to be with me today. I know traveling between the UK and New York, your schedule is very busy, so I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. So tell us, Fiona, a little bit about Mesh Experience and kind of the story, why you started the company and the essence of what you're doing. Well, I think I started the company in for the same reasons that many people start a company. And that was that I saw a gap in the market. So at the time, I was working as planning director for mm -hmm. an Omnicom agency called Clayton Healy. And I was working for brands like Mercedes-Benz. And I knew it wasn't just the TV advertising that made a difference, that it was going into a dealership that it was seeing your neighbor's car and thinking, wow, that looks good. Right. It was having a chat with your friends. It was seeing Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear at the time. <laughs> um, all those different brand encounters were making a difference to how people perceive the brand and whether or not they would end up buying the car. And I just felt there was a gap here <laughs> that we needed to fill. And I thought, well, we could do that using a mobile phone. If we get people to have a look and tell us whenever they see, hear, or experience anything to do with a particular brand, we could then actually work out which of the experiences were positive, which were less positive, and how to help clients optimize their marketing investment. That sounds really interesting. And I love that you saw the need and actually then, because a lot of us, right, many people see the need and think about an idea, but a very small percentage of people actually go execute and do it. What was that push that said, okay, I see the need. I know the marketplace wants this. I'm going to go do this. What was that time period for you? What did that look like in terms of getting actually, you know, what we turning the light on and saying, I'm going to do it? There were a number of little steps along the way, actually. Okay. So one thing was in 2001, I think it was, while I was working at Clayton Healy, we were pitching for a soft drink company. And another research company came in and said, look at what we can do. We can send a text message out to a thousand young people and ask them what is going to be number one in the hit parade <laughs> this week. And look at this. And they came back literally on the screen in this conference room. I was watching results coming in and I said, wow, that's fantastic. Right. Could you do something slightly different? Could we brief these people to tell us whenever they have a soft drink? And they said, oh, I suppose we could actually. Because I said, I want to know when are they having a soft drink? 
Who are they with? Which soft drink are they having? And they said, okay, let's give that a go. And and that's what they did. So I knew that we could use text message mm-hmm. to get this information back in terms of collecting data. And at the time, I kind of had two different ways of talking about this, which I thought was pretty cool at the time. But obviously, it was it, nowadays, you'd think it was really stupid. But one was Evalue text TXT, and the other was Ethnotext TST. <laughs> and those were the two uses because I thought one was like an ethnographic diary, right? And the other was more evaluative so that you'd be able to see if somebody saw a TV ad and then they saw a poster, then they saw somebody drinking the product, you'd be able to pick up those experiences. So I suppose the first thing was I'd done it once a few years before and I'd always thought, ooh, it'd be great to develop something. And then I met somebody who then became my business partner and he was recommended to me by one of the creatives. Well, creatives never recommend researchers to you because they don't want their, their uh, creative to be, uh, to be evaluated. So I thought, I've got to meet this person. And I met him and we decided we'd do a proactive project, which then we actually presented at the Market Research Society conference in London. And actually, this work, which was a qualitative approach, which was taking the purchase as a crime scene, if you like. So saying, right, somebody's made a purchase, they've made a purchase of a car. Let's look at all the pieces of evidence around this purchase. And let's interview people that were involved around this purchase to really understand it. And we wrote this paper and it actually won Best New Thinking. So I said to him, well, that's amazing. You know, this is one Best New Thinking. I've got another idea, which I think will really help to evaluate advertising and right. understand marketing better. And he said, oh, great idea. So that was the other kind of part of it that I had somebody else who also thought it was a yeah. good idea. I was a planner in advertising. He was a researcher. And that combination seemed to be a good one when we were going out to see clients. So I definitely think that that was the next little moment along the path, if you like, that made me think we should do it. But I have to say, it, we, we, even when we started, we thought we'd just come up with a great idea. The company is called Mesh Planning Tools Limited. Okay. This would be the first of many tools that we developed. <laughs> And that wasn't the case. We, we, we literally pushed together things like we got mobile, a mobile phone company, so it wasn't research, uh, and we kind of linked that to a panel kind of company to actually recruit some people on a mates rates approach. Okay. We then created our own diary, so we, we, we got some work that would create that. And we put that together and we did a pilot. But after I saw the data coming back in, I think there were two things that happened. One was I thought, well, if I can do that, somebody else can easily copy. So why would anyone buy it? But the more important one was I wanted to do it. I saw the data and I thought, okay, I know how this can help marketers. And at that point, which was about nine months after we'd started doing all the pilots, I said, right, okay, this is the time we actually launch Mesh as an agency. So it was it was over quite a period of time. And it was by degrees, if you right. like, before we actually got there. 
I always believe that things, you know, you experience things in a way that you can digest and kind of process. So it sounds like you went through these series of steps, which by the way, industry validation is fantastic to get best new thinking, right? And looking at the data and looking at the pilots to the point then you said, okay, let's do this. What's that time horizon that from 2001 to kind of when you actually launched Mesh? 2005 in December, I resigned as the planning director from Lady Healy and they asked me if I would continue as a freelance consultant, which was fantastic because that gave me the opportunity to actually (laughs) pull all the pieces of tech together that I needed whilst actually still enjoying getting some Some salary. Yes, exactly. So that was great. So from January, on January the 6th, we incorporated Mesh Planning Tools Limited. And by September the 1st, we actually presented, well, I I presented a paper at SMR Congress, which was in London. And that was on the pilot, on the results of the pilot. And that was the day that we decided that we would launch as an agency and go out and get clients. Fantastic. That's great. And fast forward now, we're in 2019. And how has the methodology been accepted? What are, I mean, mobile, you were early in in using mobile for data collection, right? I mean, we're still are talking about it at times as an industry saying, do we really have to optimize surveys for the mobile device? What's your experience been in terms of leveraging mobile early and now that it's mainstream? Has, has it shifted anything? I mean, it was fascinating early on because I always saw the mobile as a data collection mechanism, right? not as asking questions. Because if you think about it, in January 2006, there were no apps, even Twitter hadn't quite launched. I mean, it was really early on, but there was text message. Mm -hmm. So I thought if you sent a text with a code that said A Coca-Cola, B Pepsi, etc., A TV, B Poster, C Radio, um, one to five, very negative to very positive, that then somebody would text back, AB5, and you would know what that meant. So it wasn't as though I was asking people to text kind of answers. It was literally a code that they were sending back, but it meant something to us. Okay. But of course, I, I really faced people saying, well, I mean, you know, what are you doing collecting mobile, you know, data yeah. through a mobile phone? And well, who's going to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of person? And is it isn't it going to be not representative? So I had all of all those challenges. Uh, yeah. yeah, all of those challenges. Um, but I think it really started to gain momentum in 2012 when um, we'd been working with Cranfield School of Management in the UK, uh, an academic um, institution. And they'd written this fantastic paper using our data, which was then put into Harvard Business Review. And I think when Harvard Business Review said that this was a new tool that radically improved marketing research, all of a sudden it felt like it was acceptable. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If it's not acceptable at that point, then then I, I don't know what a harder mountain there is to climb. No, exactly. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious about respondent engagement in this process. Is it is it that they're you're asking them 
to feed information real time as they experience it? Is, is it? is the onus on the consumer or are you pushing to remind them to record information? It's, it's definitely the first. So what we, what we ask our participants to do is we want them to become researchers in their everyday life. Okay. And we want them to tell us whenever they see, hear, or experience anything to do with the list of brands that we give to them. Now, that could be a whole category. So we've launched a retail banking study in the UK, and that would be tell us whenever you see, hear, experience a retail bank. Or it could be here are four brands that we're looking for. We'd like you to tell us whenever you experience these four brands. So it is up to the participant, but we do send them reminders. Okay. So, you know, remember the survey, please keep going. Yes. Uh, so we send all of those kind of things for participant engagement. And of course, it is important to keep people uh, engaged. Right. We don't want to overburden them with long surveys before they start. Um, we want to make it as enjoyable and engaging as we can. We found that people really like the diary and, and that kind of platform that we that we built because particularly in the past, I think people have had to answer a survey question and unless you answer, you know, A, B or C, you can't get through to the next question. Whereas this was, well, what is your experience? So they tell us okay. the experiences that are important, but there are implicit measures as well. So before people start telling us the experiences, we ask about their brand perceptions. They normally do this study for a week. And then at the end of the week, we ask again about their brand perceptions. And that means that we can then, with advanced analytics, things like logistic regression, we can start to have a look at which of those touch points have actually, for instance, driven somebody to be more trusting of the brand or to consider that brand more than they had done at the beginning of the week. So there are implicit aspects to the way we analyze the data. Got it. So the data informs kind of the brand health metrics in, in terms of which experience most likely influences a specific perception of, of a brand. Is that correct? Yes, it's Yes, it's really okay. interesting you mentioned that actually, Seema, because I know one of our clients, I, I spoke many years ago at a conference with a client from T-Mobile, and they said what was great about the data is that um, normally whenever they get the brand tracking results back and it would have consideration, either right. it's gone up or it's gone down. And if it's gone up, everybody claims that that was either to do with the great advertising or the great work done in the call center, or <laughs> everyone claims that that was theirs. And if it's gone down, everyone goes, oh no, well, it wasn't me. It wasn't right, me. Right, right, right. It must what, have been what, what's gone yeah. on, you know, and everyone runs around. And he said, what was great was we could just come to you and go, well, what was it? And you go, well, actually, don't worry consideration's gone down this month, but it will be up next month because we can see the experiences coming in now. There is a higher quantity of experiences and the quality is very good. And this is due to your new campaign. So he said it stopped a lot of unnecessary worrying. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That, and it's also nice to have insight towards the future as well. It's not just about the past, but if you can look at conversations or um, input early to kind of look at the future, that, that goes a long way. Yes. And one of the things that we, I was really delighted we were able to do for a client is they said, we're very worried about people churning. We're getting calls coming through to the call center. 
and people are, are, are churning to our key competitor. So we were able to look at the percentage of persuasive experiences. This client's uh, so customers, so it was sure. that, their, their customers, and were they having very persuasive experiences with their key competitor? And literally, we could see that mirroring the call center churn, but it was three weeks in advance. So we said that gives you three weeks yep. and we can tell you exactly whether it's going to go up or down and which elements people are responding to. So what are they saying? Because we get comments about all the experiences. What are they saying about this key competitor? What do they love about what they're putting out at the moment? Right. And then you'll, then you'll be armed in yeah. the call center. So your initial premise going into building this product was that digital is one piece and there's so many other touch points that influence a consumer and their perception of a brand. At an aggregate level, have you kind of quantified what that percentage looks like? Is it different by category, different by brand? Is there any kind of insight that you can share on that level? Yes, absolutely. One of the main things that we've looked at is we've looked at share of experience, which we we take as every paid, owned or earned experience to so any brand encounter. Okay. So let's say there were a thousand experiences that have come through. Right. If your brand has got a hundred of those experiences, you have a 10% share of experience. Now we've correlated that with market share and it has a much stronger correlation with market share than share of voice which of course has been used in the past as a way to understand um, how much investment you should be putting into your brand. Right. So if you've got a, a brand with a 15% market share, maybe you need to have 20% share of voice in order to grow your brand. Well, we find that share of experience is a much better metric. So that's one thing that we report okay. on for clients, share of experience. But of course, not all experiences are created equally. Right. And uh, the last thing you want is a negative experience, but even neutral experiences in some categories, we found when we've done the analytics, can erode brand perception. People can be less likely to consider the brand if they've had a neutral experience. And if you have a positive experience, it normally has three times the impact on brand consideration. So it's really important mm -hmm. to get those positive experiences. That's what we're looking for. And a very positive experience normally across most categories has five times the impact. So you're looking for those moments and we can help because we can say, well, for instance, perhaps you're more likely to get one of those through a cinema experience than maybe a TV experience, or you're more likely to get those with this messaging rather right. than this messaging, or you're more likely to get one of your financial services towards the end of the day rather than first thing in the morning. People right. don't want to hear about that stuff first thing in the morning. So we can then really help clients to get an unfair advantage on how to generate positive experiences for their brand. 
it sounds very powerful, the data that you collect and analyze and provide to brands. It provides some real actionability, which is fantastic. I think that's, I mean, for me, that was one of one of the keys, having come from advertising. And before I was in advertising, actually, I was a, um, a marketing manager on pet food. And it was that data. It was the fact that you can just look at it, both at a quantitative level, but also the granularity of yeah. reading the comments mm -hmm. and seeing why exactly what is going on. Right. Why do people love this ad? Or why are they saying that um, they're disappointed walking into a bank branch? You know, what is it that's going on? Because you can actually understand so much more from those comments that people make when they are unguarded and they're just describing their experience rather than you prompting them um, with a particular question. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And they're not judged. They're just literally just sharing their opinion. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fiona, let's switch gears a little bit. You are, you're very active in WIRE. I believe you actually sit on the board of WIRE, correct? I was sitting on the board of WIRE yeah, for two fantastic. years. Fantastic. Yes. And, and, and what are your thoughts about women-owned businesses? Are, do you, are you starting to see more women, you know, becoming entrepreneurs in our space or even adjacent spaces? Or are you seeing, you, you know, what trends have you observed come from your point of view? Well, I certainly think things have, been, it feels as though things have improved significantly from when I started in okay. 2006. It yeah. really does feel um, yes. more positive. Um, I think it's great. I, I also, of course, moved from the UK to the States and I suddenly felt um, that diversity was taken more seriously in the States in many ways hmm. because um, there are organizations like WeBank that are there to certify that this is a diverse business, this is a woman-owned business. Clients like Delta Airlines right. are looking to generate a billion dollars worth of, of, of business through diverse suppliers. You know, there are targets. People are trying to encourage diverse businesses. right. And that was something that I hadn't come across. I, actually, Mesh is a certified woman-owned business through um, WeConnect, which okay. is um, based in the UK because I'm not a, a US citizen, I'm a UK citizen. And through that, I've met some amazing women with fantastic businesses. And, and I think that, you know, having had the privilege of meeting them and, and hearing about their businesses in different fields, that, it, that is very inspiring, actually. So it may be just that I've found out more over right. the time, but I do think that it has become more important. And we're seeing, for example, as I mentioned earlier, we, we've got a retail banking study over here. And some of the banks are actively um, advertising about um, businesses and mm -hmm. women-owned businesses and how they're supporting them. Or there's one of the banks is supporting the women's cricket team, for example. So there are many different areas where I think diversity is being embraced, which I wasn't seeing as much of in 2006. Yeah, I definitely. Think, and I think it's a conversation now. Before it wasn't an open dialogue. And I think now people are talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Fiona, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hopefully we'll see you soon at the Wire Exec event. 
Well, that is one of the most inspirational events that uh, I've been to, Seema. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you there. And it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed our chat just now. Thank Thank you. you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.